theyeshiva.net. There's an old joke about this uh, child who would come home from school and on the way home he would go into this barber shop on a daily basis. And the barber, an old barber, wanted to, I guess, show off in front of his clients. And when the boy was coming in, he would say, here, I'm going to show you the most foolish child in the whole wide world. And when the boy would come in, the barber would take and put in one hand a dollar. And in the other hand, he would put 50 cents. And he would tell the child, here, pick whichever one you want, you can take. And the child would always take the 50 cents in lieu of the dollar. And as he was leaving, the barber would say, you know... This happens every single day. This kid is just will never get it. He just can't learn. Anyway, an hour later, one of the clients goes out and he sees the same boy coming out of the ice cream shop with all the quarters he managed to buy himself every day or almost every day, a nice ice cream. And he sees him and he says, hey, son, let me ask you something. What's worth more, a dollar or 50 cents? She says, of course, this is no brainer. Of course, a dollar is, is worth more than 50 cents. He says, so why do you take... 50 cents from the barber, not the dollar. He says, because the day I take the dollar, the game is over. So today, we're going to discuss four pillars of parenting, four pillars of mentoring, four pillars of education. Today's class is dedicated by my dear friends, Liz and Dr. Michael Michelle, in loving memory of her mother, Mrs. Shirley Levy, Sarah Pessel, Bas Reb Aryeh Leib of blessed memory and tribute to her site on the 22nd day of Adar. You may remember a few years ago, it was in 2011, a book was published and Jewish mothers went for the kill. Amy Chua, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, is a Chinese-American woman, a law professor at Yale University, and she published her own diary or memoirs about the style of parenting in China. Battle him of the tiger mother. That was the title of the book. And in her book, Amy basically maintains that Chinese mothers are way better than Western mothers, mothers born and raised in the United States of America, because she said Western mothers are way too lenient, always worried about their children's emotions and feelings. Amy cites her own strict parenting style as glaring evidence of the success of Chinese mothers versus Western mothers. She says Western mothers let their children frolic in sunlight and be lazy and complacent. Her two daughters, Amy's two daughters, spent most of their childhood locked away in their bedrooms practicing difficult compositions on the piano or the violin, until they got it right. She writes over there that her daughters were denied playdates, sleepovers, summer camps, American Idol. They were required to get straight A's on their report cards, work hard. If they failed at any of these tasks, their mother would demonstrate to them how disappointed she was and threaten to throw away their dollhouse, which of course was the only remnant of the childhood of child that they were allowed to have. Of course, her book and subsequent books and interviews and articles triggered tremendous conversation, especially among Jewish moms, because Amy may call herself a tiger, but Jewish moms see themselves as the lionesses. So Jewish mothers everywhere contributed to the conversation. Articles, blogs, seminars, workshops, websites, they argued ferociously that there were other methods to produce successful children. The truth is, my wife told me that she was recently listening to a workshop of a woman on education and parenting, and the woman stood up and said, I want to start off by saying this. When I began mothering, I thought I knew everything. You know, I would read some books and articles and I thought I was an expert. Today, after mothering eight children who are mostly grown up, I know how little I know. And that was an important and good confession because, of course, there are rules and there are important rules, but there are so many different rules for different children in different situations. Good parenting is based on balance. Of course, indulging mediocrity in children is unhealthy. 
but so is demanding perfection. Of course, we don't want our children to underachieve, but what about the pressure that is unbearable, or one that really expectations of a child that are not relatable to where he, where he or she is? And how do you know the difference? And how do you know if you're abstaining because of your own insecurities or maybe things that happened to you as a child or really for the benefit of the child? The question of what education is and how best to educate, how to parent, is complex. It's sensitive. It's multi-nuanced. How do we create balance? How do we know we're doing the right thing? This is our topic today. We're going to analyze one posik, one verse, in the Torah portion of Ayakel, the weekly portion, and we'll see how this one verse contains such a powerful blueprint and manual for parenting. You can open your source sheets if you go to theyeshiva.net, T-H-E-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A.net, theyeshiva.net. You'll see the class in the top, Tuesday Women's Class, Four Pillars of Education. You can view source sheet or below the video, there's a download icon and you can... Uh, and you can download the source sheets as you wish. Let's remember the context. The Torah portion of Ayakel describes the enthusiastic response of the Jewish people when Moses calls on them to donate materials, metals, resources, money, and assets in order to build the Mishkan, the divine home, the sanctuary for God. They are eager to bring their materials to contribute, gold, silver, copper, other precious materials which will serve this sacred purpose. So great is their desire to contribute that as far as I know, it's the only time in history that they actually donate too much. The artisans and the craftsmen come to Moses and they say, the nation has donated too much. And indeed, Moses announces, stop, stop, don't bring any more. I don't think this ever happened again in Jewish history for two reasons. First of all, did you ever hear of an organization that said, stop, 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 we have enough, we have more than enough. I never heard of that. There's never more than enough, there's never even enough, there's always a shortfall. And number two, even if theoretically there would be enough, what would most people do? They would create an endowment fund. Bring more and more and more and more and create an endowment fund. But Moses was not into that, so that was not part of the plan. So he said, stop. Stop bringing. But it demonstrates to us the enthusiasm, the passion, the umph, the gusto that accompanied this contribution. But there's something unique that we want to focus on today, which transpires in the narrative. And that is, the Torah is focusing on the role of the women in the contribution. Everybody shared. Men gave, and women gave, and the Medrash says even children gave. But if you'll take a look, Let's read the verse together inside. Vayakel Perik Lamadhe Pasak This is Exodus chapter 35, verse 22. I read. Which means the men came following the women. This is a translation of Ramban of Nachmanides the great 12th and 13th century Spanish sage, leader, physician, mystic, commentator, rabbi, teacher, debater. Ramban has a commentary on Chumash, Nachman, Nachman, and he translates, means the men came following the women. The women led the way, and the men followed them. 3,000 years before feminism, when a sanctuary for God was about to be built, the men tarried at home, while the women first came first to contribute their possessions to the divine home, and the men, they straggled, they followed the women. That's the first thing. Then the the verse continues, every generous person, every person who had a generous heart, all these people brought contributions. And then the Torah continues what the women brought. The women brought, and he points out, the Torah points out, four types of jewelry. Chach, Nezem Tabas Kumas. Here's the translation of the Ibn Ezra. Rabbeinu Avram Ibn Ezra was one of the greatest Spanish commentators, linguists, sages, poets, scientists, poets, astronomer, one of the greatest astronomers, scientists. Very, very interesting man. He was known as Rabbeinu Avraham Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra. He lived in the 12th century in Spain. He has a commentary on Chumash. He translates as follows. 
Chach are earrings. Nezem, nose rings. Tabas, finger rings. Kumas, armbands. This is his translation. Rashi has somewhat of a different translation. He translates them as bracelets, earrings, finger rings, and buckles that were placed in a private, intimate space. But the Ezra's translation is, they brought earrings, nose rings, finger rings, and armbands. And then the Torah continues, all kinds of golden objects, and every person, every man who waved a waving of gold to God. Now this is interesting, because the jewelry was not used in the sanctuary as is. What purpose would an earring or a nose ring serve in the sanctuary? Rather, they were all melted down, and the gold or the silver was then used for diverse purposes, whether constructing a candelabra or weaving an apron. Why then does the Torah find it necessary to articulate four particular types of jewelry that the women brought? Especially that the verse concludes that they brought all kinds of golden objects. So you're telling me anyway that they brought more golden objects, more golden vessels, more golden jewelry. So the Torah could have just said that the women brought all types of golden objects or all types of jewelry, and that would include all forms of jewelry, whatever they may be. The Torah doesn't do that. The Torah says all golden objects, but it makes sure to point out four exclusive types of jewelry. What is more, it's logical to assume that some women brought other types of jewelry. Has no woman brought a bracelet? In this list, according to Ibn Ezra's interpretation, you don't have a bracelet. You have earrings. Again, you have earrings. You have nose rings. You have finger rings. And you have armbands. Did nobody bring a bracelet? Did nobody bring a necklace? I'm sure some people brought bracelets. We have bracelets mentioned in Chumash earlier. Eliezer gave Rivka bracelets. Why did nobody bring a bracelet? So you say they did. The Torah just gives examples. So why are these four types of jewelry mentioned? Why do only these four types of jewelry get the privilege of being articulated explicitly in the narrative? And the truth is it's even more strange. When it comes to the men, the Torah does not specify which items they brought. The Torah merely states that they contributed from their assets, their resources, and their, their materials. They contributed excessively, giving away all the material that was necessary to build the divine sanctuary. Why were the women different? Why, when it comes to the women, does the Torah feel compelled to specify which types of jewelry they contributed? And it's four, not more. You guessed it, four pillars of parenting, four foundations of education. The insight I'm going to share with you today has a very interesting historical background to it, and it brings us back to March 1934. Yudbeis Adar Tafresh Tzadik Dalit. The city is Riga, in a country called Latvia, one of the greatest Jewish leaders of the time is known, known today as the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson. The Rebbe Rayatz. Rayatz is Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak. He lived much of his life in Russia under the Tsar and then lived through the Bolshevik Revolution. And when he became the leader of Chabad in 1920, this was in the midst of the Bolshevik Revolution and the civil war that followed between the Reds and the Whites. There were close to 6 or 7 million Jews then living in Russia under the horrific oppression of communism created by Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Leon Trotsky, whose real name was Leibel Brunstein. And this man almost single-handedly stood up to Stalin's ruthless, horrific evil. Stalin himself managed to kill between 20 and 50 million people during the years from 1924, when he succeeded Lenin. Lenin died in 1924, until Stalin's death in March 1953, Purim 1953. The Rebbe was finally arrested in 1927 by the Bolsheviks, the Yevsektsia, which was the Jewish party of the Communist Party. I'm not going to now get into the Yevsektsia. We did other classes about the uniqueness of the Yevsektsia, and what they, they managed in 10 years to destroy Judaism in Russia in a way 
that was not done by the so-called Enlightenment over 200 years, what they did in 10 years, headed by Shimon Dimenstein, who was a yeshiva boy, an ordained rabbi. Ultimately, the whole Yevsexia was murdered by Stalin because they were too Jewish, even though they sacrificed their life to uproot Judaism and demonstrate their loyalty to the to the communists. But that's a separate saga, a very dramatic and tragic saga. The Rebbe was arrested in 1927. They sentenced him to death. And then they commuted it to 10 years in the Gulag, and then they commuted it to three years in the Gulag, and then he was liberated. He was liberated in 1927, and he left Russia in uh, the end of 1927, and uh, he moved to Riga, to Latvia. Later he would move to Warsaw, then he would move to Tvotsk, and he would make it out from Nazi-occupied Poland and arrive in the United States in March 1940, and uh, he lived here for 10 years. He passed away Yud 1950, Tavshin Yud, in New York, and his resting places in Queens, Montefiore, and then he was succeeded by his son-in-law, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneers, in the 7th Lubavitcher He was an extraordinary person, uh, an extraordinary leader, uh, mentor, father, and really uh, his courage, resilience, fortitude was, was simply incredible. In 1934... He visited Riga. He was then living in Poland, but he visited Riga, Latvia. And during the days between Yudbeis and Chaf Adar, he addressed exclusively groups of Jewish girls and women living in Riga. Now, it doesn't sound like a big deal today, but as far as I know, I think it was, as far as I know, maybe I don't know, but I think it was the first time such a thing was done. A Rebbe addressing women exclusively. Usually rabbis and Rebbes, they spoke to men Sometimes women could participate in the women's section, but I don't think it was, it was heard of then that a Rebbe should speak to women. This was a uh, trailblazing notion, and it underscored the Rebbe's vision that if Judaism is going to have a future, the women will need to take a significant leadership role. Of course, Sarah Schneer in 1917 revolutionized the Jewish world when she opened up the first Jewish girls' school in Krakow, the first Beis Yaakov, which was supported enthusiastically by the Rebbe, by the Rebbe Rayatz, by Chaim Moise by the Belzer Rebbe, by the Gera Rebbe, by many other leaders of that time, even though some opposed it. In 1934, the Rebbe spoke to women. And one of these talks, a very profound, moving, and elegant address, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebbe Yosef Yitzchak, address the symbolic meaning of each type of ornament that the women brought to the sanctuary. He spoke in March 34 in a different world, in a different milieu, in a different environment, in a different climate. Riga of the 30s. But the wisdom and the majestic truth that he conveyed, I think, remains remarkably relevant in the 21st century when we focus on our own lives, on our own challenges, and we reflect on our own patterns of pedagogy, mentorship, parenting, and education. And the Rebbe said then that there are two major stories in Torah that affect the very fabric of Jewish life and history. The first is the revelation at Sinai, and the second is the building of the Mishkan. At Sinai, God comes down the first and only time in history and reveals his very presence to the Jewish people and through them to the world. And then later, in the same book in Exodus, he gives the Jews a project of building a home where the Shekhinah, the divine presence, will actually dwell. And he says, isn't it fascinating that in both of these instances, women lead the way. In the portion of Yisra, before the giving of the Torah, God tells Moses, First communicate the Torah to the house of Jacob, which refers to the women. Beis Yaakov, Elu Hanoshim, the Mechilta says. And then, the Sagid Libnei Yisrael. Then communicate the Torah to the sons of Israel. First make sure that the message is heard by the women. And then the men. Here, by the building of the Mishkan, once again, Anoshim Al Hanoshim. The women are the first, and they are leading the way. This represents that God understood very well, that the very foundations of Jewish life, which is upholding the Torah that was given at Sinai and turning our world into a sanctuary for the divine, it's not just women have a job, but women must lead. Not just as partners, 
but as leaders. What does the Mishkan represent? The Mishkan represents that Jews took physical material and they turned it into a divine abode, a place where the divine presence would dwell. The Mishkan was a microcosm, a reflection of what our daily job is in our own homes. Each one of our homes and each one of our lives is intended to be a Mishkan, a place, an abode for truth, for love, for light, for infinity, for integrity, for holiness, for beauty, for goodness, for kindness, for morality, for godliness. So the Mishkan was the national project that the Jews created in the desert, but really it represented a replica, a mirror, that Jewish women and Jewish men and Jewish families and communities would continue to construct daily. And that's, by the way, the reason why the labors of Shabbos, the 39 forbidden labors that we're not allowed to do on Shabbos, we learn from the Mishkan, the work of the Mishkan. Because that's the work we do during the six days of the week. All the work we do during the six days of the week is basically building a Mishkan. And whatever you did in building the Mishkan, you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. It's not just a coincidental connection. It's because that is the daily work of the Jew. The daily work of the Jew is to create a sanctuary for God. To take my body, my soul, my mind, my home, my life, and create within it an environment, an abode, where the divine light where the divine truth dwells. Each one of our homes is a mirror of the tabernacle. And that's specified immediately. When the Torah says the first time, God says to build a sanctuary, He says, Let them build for me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. And the commentators say, this doesn't seem grammatically to make sense. It should say, I will dwell in it, not in them. They're building one sanctuary, I will dwell in it, not in them. The answer, of course, is the sanctuary is simply the physical reflection and the conduit through which the divine presence will dwell among them, among the people. In within the Jewish heart, within the Jewish woman, the Jewish man, the Jewish child, young and old alike, I want to dwell in you. Each one of us is capable of becoming a conduit for the light of the divine to constantly vibrate and flow through us. And that's the light of empowerment, the light of infinity, infinite love, infinite blessing, infinite courage, infinite confidence, infinite wholesomeness, infinite inner joy and possibility. I want to dwell in you, in your brain, in your heart, in your emotions, in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions. How do we build such a home? How do we create such a family? How do we create such a dinner table, such a Shabbos table? How do I create such a life for myself? Comes the Torah and says, back to that verse, the men came following the woman. Every generous, every generous person brought. And then the Torah says, and the women brought, you remember? Earrings, nose rings, finger rings, and armbands. As is often the case, a woman feels a very organic connection with her home. She cares for its organization, its beauty, its neatness in a uniquely profound way. It's her nest. Her energy is imprinted in the ambiance of the home. Every man has to recognize and respect and cherish what a woman does to a home, transforming it from a house into a home, from a physical space into a living, organic haven for life. And she brings forth to build her home four unique pieces of jewelry, earrings, nose rings, finger rings, and armbands. Here lay the four pillars of parenting, the calling of every mother, but also every father, every teacher, every educator, every mentor, and every person who has influence on another person and who does not. We are all educating ourselves and others. So when the Torah speaks about the home built for God, It's really talking about a replica for everyone's home. And this is where we all contribute. We all make a contribution. We all build those homes. But the Torah says the women led the way and they contributed four things. Those four things are essential to specify in order to understand how you build a home that is filled with healthy, appropriate, moral, inspiring, moral and inspiring energy and love. The first piece of jewelry that's necessary in education and parenting 
is the earring. And the earring symbolizes the need to use your ears. Listen. The first rule in education and parenting is listen. What's the Jewish motto? Shema Yisrael. Listen. Haskes of Shema Yisrael. Listen carefully to your children. Tune in when your children speak. And tune in also to their silence. If you listen, you will hear deep truths emerging from their mouth. Listen to them when they're going to sleep and listen to them when they wake up. Listen to them when they're playing and listen to them when they're eating. Listen to them when they come home from school and listen to them throughout the day and the night. Listen up to when they're speaking to each other. Listen to your children speaking to their siblings or to their friends or to their relatives. You will learn so much about your child's state of mind and heart. Many of us are good at speaking, look who's talking, (laughs) at communicating. But I have to learn how to listen, to really, really be attentive. That's the first thing, those earrings. You've got to focus on those ears, on those oznayim. By listening to our children conversing with each other, we also learn a tremendous deal about ourselves. When you listen to your children, you discover how they perceive you, what they think about you, what they say about you. And you learn what are the underlying messages you have instilled in them consciously or subconsciously. Listening to your children changes changes us. It empowers us to mend flaws in ourselves, in our marriages. Our children can really teach us so much about ourselves. And then when we change, our children can observe and learn from us and see us as good examples how to live their own lives. Also, lend your ear to good and sound parenting advice. They may teach you things that you never realized on your own. I need to have mentors, people I trust, leaders, people of love and and, and spirituality and commitment who I can open up to and who I could listen to, who I can gain guidance from. So as a parent, never ever remove your ear ring. You must always keep those ears attentive. The earring, the earring is the ability to be able to listen. Sometimes a child is screaming or crying and like, oh, stop it, it's not a big deal. And, and, and I shut, I, sh- I, I cause them to shut down and basically I may be teaching them that they can't trust their emotions, they can't express their emotions, having these emotions may be bad and that could create anxiety. So I have to have the courage to be able to listen to what they're saying. I may learn a lot from it. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be, you don't have to be in control You don't need everything looking perfect. You want to really help the person become the person they want to become. I hope you understand what I'm saying. This is important stuff. We sometimes shut down our children's emotions because we're uncomfortable. It may be hard to hear somebody crying. Okay, you may have to go to the, you may have to go do some exercise. That's fine. I may need some meditation. Maybe, you know, maybe you need to write a journal. Maybe you need to go to the forest. Maybe it's important to do some physical activity. That's very important to be able to have stamina and vigor. That's all very important. You have to take care of yourself in order to take care of your children. Very, very important. We spoke a few weeks ago about is there room in Judaism for self-love, right? Is there room in Judaism? Avas Yisrael begins with yourself. Loving the Jew inside of you, loving the peace of God that is you, always begins with that. But when I approach my child, I want to approach them from a place of inner wholesomeness. I don't have to repress or stifle anything. I want to be able to be there with them on their journey. It's so important for children to feel that they're understood by their parents and teachers. That's the ear. The first thing is the earring. They have to feel that they are understood. If they don't feel that they are understood it can create a lot of negative results. They have to be able to know that we understand them. And the only way they can know that is when we really, really listen to them. And we show them that their words, their gestures, their expressions are valuable and that we're embracing each and every one of those expressions so that they can really feel understood because attachment is so important. Which brings us to step two, nose rings. We're done with chach, we come to the nezem. Got to use your nose. The second piece of jewelry is the nose ring representing, representing the importance to sniff, to smell. I have to listen to my child's explicit words, but in addition to that, I need to be able to sniff with my nose, sensing the unspoken words, 
of my loved ones. Be alert to subtle signs of unhappiness, dejection, fear, insecurity, pain, despair that may exist in my children or my students. I have to be able to sniff out if my child perhaps has been hurt. Sometimes, God, God forbid, a child is being touched, molested, bullied, tormented. It's affecting them deeply, but they may be too afraid or too ashamed to speak, which is why it's so important to cultivate good communication with our children that they should always know that they could come to us with their problems because they know that our earrings are in place, that we're going to listen, we're not going to deny, we're not going to delegitimize, we're not going to dismiss it, we're not going to tell them not to speak like this and not to come up with these stories and not to concoct these narratives. They must trust that we are going to listen. It's so important to build up that trust as best as we can because if, God forbid, something challenging happens, if they, God forbid, fall prey to some form of addiction or somebody schleps them into something undesirable, they know they can come to Tati, they can come to Mami. But in addition to that, it's so important to have our nose attentive, to be able to have our sense of smell developed. Especially children can't always articulate their emotions in words. Sometimes they're afraid. Sometimes they simply don't have the ability. We must use our noses, so to speak, to sense their inner state of being to the best of our ability. You also have to sniff out who are your children's companions and friends. Are these friends who are going to build your children's character, their relationships, and their relationship skills? Are these friends who will be a good influence on their lives? Are these bonds enhancing your children's morality, sensitivity, goodness, kindness, confidence, purity, refinement, holiness, or maybe these bonds are making your children miserable in the long run or in the short run, long term or short term. Again, my child may not be able to talk about it. He may not want to talk about it. She may not want to talk about it. I have to sniff it out. You have to have a good sense of smell, where your children are hanging out, who they're hanging out with, what are the consequences are, how they're spending their days, how they're spending their nights, what's happening in their environment, what's happening in their heart, what's happening in their room, what's happening on their devices, I should add. A good educator has to have a chush hareach. It says about Mashiach, v'heirichoi b'yiras Hashem, Isaiah 11. He's going to smell the fear of God. The Talmud says, He judges based on smelling. A good educator has to have a sense of smell to pick up not only on the revealed, but also on the concealed, not only on the spoken, but also on the unspoken, not only on the conscious, but also on the subconscious. The nose rings are vital to create a home of God in my little world, in my little universe. Which brings us to the next step, and that is tabas, finger rings, observation alone, via ears, via the ears, and via the nose, are important. That's the first thing. You have to listen and you have to smell. But they are insufficient alone to raise healthy, wholesome, secure, happy, God-fearing, mention. Now I need to cultivate my finger. Use your finger to give guidance and direction, to point out to your children the right paths in life versus the wrong paths in life. With your finger, you must point out right from wrong, noble from crude, holy from profane, moral from immoral, happy from miserable, good from bad, purity from filth, true from false. I have to be able to point Point things out for your child. Clarify things. Explain things. Give them insight on life, on people, on truth, on God, on meaning, on themselves. Allow them to be able to see you as that guide, that person having a finger that points out, that clarifies, that crystallizes. Don't simply give orders. Rather, use your finger to show them the right way. Let them try to understand it, internalize it to the best of their ability, and of course, age-appropriate. The last piece of jewelry is kumas. Do you remember? 
We have chach. What's chach? Devin Ezra said, earrings. Nezem, noseband. You got to listen, you got to smell. Tabas is the fingering. And then kumaz. Kumaz is the armbands. The arm, the armbands. It's on the arm. We, has to, we have to finally bring forth the armband in order to create a mishka, to create a divine home. Which means we have to cultivate our arms in order to raise gold children or mold successful grandchildren, students, nephews, nieces, and all people we come into contact with because every person is a child and every person is a mentor. Each one of us is a giver and each one of us is a recipient. The arm represents strength, assertiveness, power. A parent must lead, not follow. A parent can't be a victim to their children. A parent can't be reactive. A parent has to be proactive. Don't just step into their life after the problem. A parent has to be striving. We have to strive to stay ahead of the game, to anticipate trouble spots, and to lead with assertiveness, with identity, with full presence. The armband represents strength, discipline. Don't be afraid to discipline your child. Don't be afraid to say, this is inappropriate, this is wrong, this should not happen. They need it. They will cherish it. But before you discipline your child, make sure you discipline yourself. When the Torah speaks about rebuking somebody, in Leviticus, it says, twice. Rebuke shall you rebuke your friend. Why twice? The Baal Shem Tev said, because before you rebuke somebody else, before you try to discipline your child, you first have to discipline yourself. Children respond to the, uh, to the example and to the energy created by the adults around them. If you're lazy and you can't get your life under control, what do you expect of your child? If I'm eating in an inappropriate way, I expect them to have manners. Before I discipline somebody else, I have to be internally disciplined. I can't discipline somebody else if I'm not ready to challenge myself. I have to look at myself. How am I behaving internally? What does the Torah say right afterwards? The men came following the women. Every generous hearted person brought the contributions. And then the Torah speaks about the earrings, the nose rings, the finger rings, the armbands, all kinds of golden objects. But before the Torah enumerates the jewelry, the Torah says, Koil nediv lev heviu. The contributions were brought by people who have a nediv lev. Nediv lev means a generous heart. This has to be the foundation and the prerequisite for all of the four pieces of jewelry, for the four pillars of education. A generous giving heart, a love for my students, a love for my children. Then I will use my ears and my nose and my finger and my arm to raise beautiful and lovely children and students. I have to always remember that the gifts I give to my home, to my children, are like the contributions given for the Mishkan. They're personal. They're voluntary. I should never allow education to become cumbersome and just a ritual obligation that I get tired of and exhausted. We all get exhausted. But Nediv Lev, I have to be able to see the beauty and to cherish the opportunity to come to it with an open heart, to give gladly, to give generously, to give with a full heart. Your personal sanctuary will blossom under the caring touch that only you can provide with Nedivus Halev, with the heart that you have, with the love that vibrates in you, with the inner conviction and inner commitment and inner dedication that you have uniquely in your heart. So we have the four pieces of jewelry, according to the Ebenezerah, earrings, nose rings, finger finger rings, and armbands. How does Rashi translate these four pieces of jewelry? I told you Rashi has a different translation. Bracelets, earrings, finger rings. And what's the last one? Kumas. So here's interesting. According to the Ebenezer, Kumas is the armband. According to Rashi, Kumas were buckles, Rashi says, buckles that some people had in the space of intimacy, in their private space. And the Rebbe spoke to the women then, and he said, this interpretation of Rashi represents another central pillar of education. 
and that is the kumas, the centrality of family purity, that our intimate lives, our inner homes, our inner bedrooms are guided by the boundaries, by the limits, by the structure created by halacha, created by the code of Jewish law known as Taris HaMeshpacha, the family purity, and all they include. That is what's represented by that piece of jewelry. This is the Torah's blueprint that governs marriage, physical relationships, intimacy, and this is so essential for raising beautiful, happy, and loving children. A father once came to the Baal Shem Tev with a problem concerning his son. He complained that the son was forsaking Judaism and morality. And he asked the Baal Shem Tev what he can do. And the Baal Shem Tev answered, Love him more. The Baal Shem Tev understood what we understand today about the power of attachment, the power of connection. When I raised children, it could never be personal. It's not about me. My perfection should look good for me. You are a nachas machine. And if you get through the system, you'll give me nachas and everything will be good. Of course, that would be awesome. But my child is God's child. And God entrusted this child to me in order for me to polish the diamond and for me to cultivate and help this child achieve his or her most, his or her greatest potential to maximize their inner light child doesn't belong to me. I don't own the, my child. And the child was not created in order to fulfill my expectations and fill my voids. The child is part of the shlichas, the mission that my soul was given. I was entrusted with these divine diamonds. They're not mine. They're God's diamonds. I was entrusted to be able to do whatever I can to help them. So this is not about validating me, me feeling guilty, me not feeling guilty, me being content with who you are, not content with who you are, miserable about you. It often becomes very much about me. I am miserable, I am not happy, which is normal, which is human. We all have that part in us. What we're learning here is that I'm really building a home for God. I'm building a family for the Jewish people. I'm building a family for Hashem. I am cultivating God's children. I'm creating a dwelling place for the divine light. That is our job as parents. And that each child is an indispensable note in this cosmic divine symphony, an indispensable part of this divine tabernacle. So I bring forth these four pieces of jewelry, each one in our own way. I bring forth my earrings. I bring forth my nose ring. I bring forth my finger ring. I bring forth my armband. And as a prerequisite to all of them, I have to bring forth my heart, my full heart. Kyle Nadiv Leif Havio. Thank you very much. We'll open the floor to questions. The Chinese way is for kids to obey even during a stern upbringing. This childbearing philosophy, which might produce smart students who excel in academics, also produce adults who don't question totalitarianism, dictatorship, communism, censorship. So you have to realize that it comes with a price. Listen, I'm no expert on the Chinese way of raising children. I think that, you know, the Mishnah says, A wise person learns from everybody. So I'm sure we could learn from Amy, also a lesson or two. And we have to integrate it in the appropriate way. Let's face it, some of us take the easy way out, and we confuse laziness with uh, um, individuality. (laughs) Meaning, I let you do whatever you want because I want you to be you. I don't want to impose myself upon you. But sometimes it's just that I'm scared, or I'm allergic to discipline, or I don't know what discipline is, or I'm afraid of myself, or I'm not in the mood, or I like to be detached, or I'm out for lunch, or I'm cerebral. You know, that can happen. So we really have to look at ourselves because very often our lack of discipline is not coming from strength and from love. It's coming from apathy, from indifference. You know, just figure out your life on your own. And we know today that just as creating a home that is a boot camp can be very traumatic for a child, creating a home where there's no guidelines, where there's no respect, where there's no boundaries is equally traumatic to a child. And some people say it could sometimes be even worse 
for a child. They can create worse trauma. They don't know who they are. They don't know what red lines they can't cross. They don't know who their parents are. On the other hand, creating a home that you call a dictatorship or a, a, a totalitarian state is obviously very, very unhealthy. That's why I began. There is so much balancing here. And, and, so, and children are different. And what about a child who has special needs? And what about a child who's suffering? And what about a child who's having you know, delays or developmental challenges? And what about a child who's suffering from, from anxiety and trauma? And, and today, these things are rampant. So it's extremely important to be very sensitive and respectful and not to uh, create and, you know, convey blanket statements. This is how you educate. This is how a home runs. For one child, it's 100% true. And for the other child, you may have to make adjustments. And we always have to be very sensitive to what our calling is at this moment and not get stuck in certain expectations. The sanctuary is a unique home that each one of us creates with the tools that we have. No two Jews contributed the same thing to God's home. If I had gold, I gave gold. And if you had copper, you gave copper. If I had turquoise, I gave turquoise. And if you had scarlet, you gave scarlet. Everybody gave, one person gave incense, and one person gave herbs, and one person gave oil, and one person gave jewels. I can't contribute what you have. I could contribute what I have. What does this mean in life? My contribution to creating a family, to creating a beautiful world in my corner of the universe is unique. It's unique to the resources that I have, to the children that were given to me, to the opportunities that were given to me, to the challenges that were given to me. That is what I bring forth. I can't copy you. I could learn from you. I could be inspired by you. But I can't copy you. I can't emulate you. Everything you shared, I feel so strongly and instinctively. It's extremely validating and reaffirming to hear it from such a holy source as the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Yes, 100%. This is a timeless gem, a Yiddish talk that the Rebbe spoke in Yiddish in 1934. As I told you, from what I know, it's maybe the first talk ever from a Rebbe, a great Hasidic spiritual master to women. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, his son-in-law, would speak to women, just address women a few times a year before a Shoshana and during a convention in, in, uh, in May. And I remember growing up, 770, which was usually filled with men or boys learning in yeshiva, would empty out. And the whole shul, it's a big place, a few thousand people would fill with women. And the Rebbe would come down with two or three of his secretaries, assistants, and they would stand there. And the Rebbe would speak to a shul packed with women, thousands of women, um, I would then go into the women's section. I would go to, the men had to go to the women's section to, to, to listen to the talk. And it was extraordinary talks. But the first time that I know about, I'm sure we could find some other precedents. You have to research it. But the first time I found it was the Rebbe in 1934, the Sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe speaking to the women in Riga. And if you go to the source sheets, you'll see that I included the whole talk in Yiddish. So those of you who understand Yiddish, give yourself a little paradise and uh, go through, learn through that talk. You could do it with your husband or yourself or with a friend in Yiddish. You'll see the source sheets. If you go to theyeshiva.net and the, the class, the women's class today, so there's view source sheets. So you have the verse that we spoke about and then you have on page two the whole talk of the Rebbe in the original Yiddish that was written then in 1934 and you could study it on your own. There's some more details that I didn't, uh, that I didn't include in the talk. Next question. After our children marry, what happens now? I had a relative who said she asked how she can be of help at that point. And they told her, never give your opinion. <laughs> That's how you could be of help. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so first of all, let me say that tomorrow, Wednesday, 10 o'clock p.m., we're having, we're beginning our three lecture series on dating. And the first one is for parents. What is the role of parents in the dating scene? The next one is going to be for boys who are dating, and the next one is going to be for girls who are dating. But tomorrow evening, March 10th, 10 o'clock p.m., on Zoom, this is going to be on Zoom, live, interactive, with all parents, mothers and fathers, what is the parent's role before dating, during dating, after dating? Tomorrow evening, 10 o'clock p.m. It's not going to be on the web. It's going to be later on the website. But if you want live, you could comment and ask your questions. It's going to be on the Zoom. If you... Uh, 
if you have our WhatsApp, we'll send you the Zoom link, or you can email me or email our, web- our website, and they will give you the link to the Zoom. That's info at theyeshiva.net, and you can also sign up to our WhatsApp so you get the daily notices of all the new classes. You can go to info at theyeshiva.net and say, I want to sign up to WhatsApp, and they'll send you the messages for tomorrow's class and also the other classes. Also tomorrow, Wednesday, 1 o'clock p.m., we have a lecture to the South African Jewish community right here on theyeshiva.net. This will be on theyeshiva.net. And the topic is transforming trauma and pain into growth and opportunity. That's Wednesday, March 10th, 1 o'clock p.m. New York time, addressing the South African community with questions and answers right here on theyeshiva.net. Wednesday night, 10 o'clock on Zoom, we have our first series on parenting. Thursday morning, 7.30 in the morning, we continue part two of the discourse of the Baal HaTanya on Pesach, discussing the role of faith and matzah in a Jew's life. That's going to be Thursday, 7.30. So put it into your diary because we have a very, very, very busy, very busy week. I'm going to make a commercial for last Thursday's class. It was called, Do Jews, Do Jews Suffer from a Attachment Disorder? Last Thursday morning, we learned an incredible, incredible piece on the breaking of the tablets. If you go to the yeshiva.net recent classes, you'll see the title, um, The Jews Suffer from Detachment Disorder. Uh, This is very, very, uh, very, very interesting stuff. I'm going to make an ad, I'm I'm doing a commercial for it because I think it would be a very good idea for people to, uh, to hear it. Okay, let me take another few questions here and then we'll let you all go. And, uh, uh, get your jewelry, you, you get the jewelry you need, and donate the jewelry you need. So, when, the question is about when our children get older. When our children get older, our role changes. Um, your, your 7-year-old is not your 17-year-old, and your 17-year-old is not your 27-year-old. And yes, when our children leave the home and get married, they're living their own lives, and it's not our role to give them advice on how to live. Of course, if they come to us and they consult us, we want to be there for them. But this is the point where we have to respect their decisions. We just want to stay close. We want to be there for them as much as we can in every possible way. We want to maintain a powerful connection, but we have to let go. It's not anymore about me. It's about my child. Of course, there are exceptions. If my child is in a very difficult situation, uh, say an abusive relationship, sometimes I have to step in against their will. They may be terrified, but those are exceptions. If more or less they're, they're living a healthy lifestyle and they're happy and things are fine, we have to back off and our connection has to come from a very deep, mature place and really ask ourselves, is this about me or is this about what my child needs? That's the key question. And if I can answer that question honestly, a lot of problems would be avoided. How to get rid of the feeling of self when parenting? I want my child to be a nachas machine. I want my child to give me pleasure. I feel like I'm very quick to judge and think what they should be and could be, constantly looking at them through the lens of what they should be rather of what they are. Wow. Yes, yes. This is, this is a very good question. And, you know, I admire you just for having the ability to observe that. The fact that you can observe that in your life and you could say... I see my child as a nachas machine and I just want you to do the right thing so that I could feel good and, and you become like part of my checklist. You know, my computer is working, my car is working, my house is working and my kids are working. The fact that you can observe it is a great virtue because that means you don't have to fall prey to it. I can observe it. I can feel the urge to right away make things straight and everything should look perfect for my sake. And then I could say, but where is my child? And what does my child need at this moment? And am I giving my child my real heart? And am I treating my child as a real person, with a real heart, with a real soul, with a real brain? My child is not just a mirror of me. And my child is not just created to sit on the couch and be quiet and listen to my orders. My child is a real person. So the moment you can observe these patterns in your brain, you can then make a choice of how to behave. Beautiful, beautiful question. I was not clear before. My relative asked her children, how can I help? And never gave her opinion of their decisions after they were married. What should we do? Should we give our opinions? If they want your opinions, you should give your opinions. If they don't want your opinions, you should probably be very cautious if and how to give your opinions. 
The key is to try to be able to really develop a close relationship with our children, but without feeling compelled to control the situation. In fact, the more you could really relax and the more you can really accept that they are who they are, then you can probably develop a much deeper and better relationship. The more I need to control the relationship, the more they'll run away and be allergic to it. The more you can really accept them and embrace them and enjoy them, the closer you'll probably become with them. You speak about the need for discipline. Is discipline always good? Shouldn't love be the prerequisite? Of course love should be the prerequisite. Discipline is a symptom of love. Discipline comes from love. We're not talking about discipline that is based on anger, impetuousness, impulsiveness. This is not the discipline that's coming from a compulsive disorder or because I'm furious and angry. I lost my marbles. I lost my wits. I lost my patience. And therefore I get into a frenzy and I start disciplining you in an indiscriminate way. We're talking here about discipline that is based on connection, discipline that is based on attachment, discipline that's really concerned about what the child needs at this moment in order to be able to be functional, responsible, to cultivate resilience. Now, but it's never, it, it, it's never black and white. Some children have, special, have challenges. Some parents have challenges. So it's so important to have compassion for your child and for yourself. It's this education is not a checklist. Education is dealing with a life. It's the most complex field in the world. It's the most complex. You're dealing with neshamas. You're dealing with real people. It's so important to have compassion for yourself and for other people. You spoke two years ago at a convention of Chabad Shluchos in New York, operating from the godliness within to the godliness within your child and the divine providence of your two souls being together. This speech of yours changed everything for me. Okay, thank you. I don't remember that speech, but I assume what you're referring to is the idea that it's so easy to fall prey to external impulses and emotions of control. And really, education and parenting is about going into a much deeper place and realizing that God brought our two souls together Each of us is a piece of God, and I am here to bring out the best in you, and you're here to bring out the best in me. And if I can really accept that and be anchored in that truth, I operate from a different place. This is known as the place of Bittl. We always speak about Bittl. Bittl means alignment. I align my posture with divine infinity. When I educate from that space, there's real acceptance, there's real love, and my discipline is not coming from anger. It's coming because I'm really connected and I don't have to run away from any emotions. I don't have to stifle any emotions. I can listen to my child without the need of shutting them up and saying, no, stop crying or stop complaining. I think that's the power of the first quality. He spoke about the ears, you know, and they speak today about the four S's. Children need to, be, need to feel safe and secure. They have to feel that they're seen and they have to be able to be soothed for them to feel safe and secure and seen and be soothed, we have to be able to listen to them. We have to be able to smell what is going on in their lives. We have to be able to point a finger. And we have to be able to be fully assertive and present with our love and conviction. These four, these four pieces of jewelry contain a lot. Can you explain what the armband represented? Well, you know, it says how God took the Jews out of Egypt with a strong arm, right? With a strong hand, and with a stretched out arm. The arm represents human power, human assertiveness. So the armband represents that I parent with my arm in the sense that I'm fully present. I'm present with my strength. There is discipline in the house. I'm not running away. I'm not a victim. I don't... Uh, cave in and cave, I don't cave in to impulsive pressures. 
you know, some parents, their parenting skills are defined by the children. The children decide when we're going to eat supper, when we're going to sleep, when we're waking up. If we're going to school, <laughs> they run the house. And who am I? I just pay the bills. That's not, you're not doing them a favor. Of course you have to be sensitive to your child. Of course if your child can't go to sleep, you have to, fi- have to find out why. And of course, if my child can't get dressed in the morning, I have to figure out what's happening. Maybe he's scared to be alone in the room upstairs. Maybe we have to bring the clothes downstairs. Of course, you have to always be, that's the first thing, you have to listen. But I have to ultimately use my arm in the sense of be assertive, be present, anticipate things, create a structure for the house, be a leader, don't be a victim. That's what the armband represents. And don't be afraid to discipline, disciplining out of love, out of affection, out of attachment, not out of anger, and losing it. Yes, sometimes we get angry, and you know what? That's normal. We, can, we get angry and we lose it sometimes, and we sometimes scream, and we can tell, speak about that to our children. We can speak about our weakness and we can apologize. But it's much better to be present than to disappear. There are people who never, ever got angry because they were not there. <laughs> they were emotionally not there, so they never got upset. If you're there, you're going to get upset. But it's, So it's important to work on it you know, to, to be balanced, to speak nicely, to be refined, not to react from an angry, impulsive space. But the alternative for that is not to disappear, to become absent, emotionally absent. That's not the alternative. The alternative is to be able to be focused and balanced and anchored and level-headed and mindful in every situation. You cannot unmute yourself if you want. So you're saying that your mother, Kanayanara, had 13 children and everyone felt as an only child, as an individual. How did your mother manage to do that? Can you tell us the trick? I, I'm still trying to figure it out. She doesn't want to take any credit. So. It's, like, it's like Coca-Cola ingredients. She keeps it for herself and it's a secret ingredient. Nobody gets to know it. No, when I was in Atlanta, I went to her. visit. Huh? She tells me it wasn't her. It was their evidence, their guidance. You know, educating children is first and foremost educating yourself. <laughs> That's the real truth. We educate ourselves. That's what it's really about. Of course, I have to educate my child and spend time with my child and make supper for the children and, and make sure they have what they need for school and take them to the doctor, of course. And that can be, you know, that can take 25 hours out of the day. But the real inner foundation is educating myself. It's really being in a, in a positive space, in a sacred space, in an anchored space, in a divine space, in a space of humility coupled with assertiveness, in a space of love, realizing that I'm a conduit for the divine energy to flow through me, not taking my ego seriously at all, (laughs) not taking things personal, not letting my ego or insecurity take over, and really being fully present in the moment and realizing that that this moment is is the moment. This moment is the purpose of creation. We talk about often, you know, the power of now. This moment is the moment. There's no better moment. There's no greater moment. This is the moment. And that ability to re- really be fully present, that's... That was the Mishkan. One of the unique things, when you read about the sanctuary and the Mishkan, it's the seriousness with which they took the work there every day. They did the same thing every day. The lamb in the morning and the lamb in the afternoon, and libations of wine in the morning and libations of wine in the afternoon, and burning incense in the morning and burning incense in the afternoon, and lighting a candelabra in the evening and then cleaning the candelabra in the morning, and taking out the ashes every morning. Etc. Etc. And at some point, some point, some point, you say, is this just getting a little boring, and, and, and just the daily grind, the daily routine. But they knew that they were actually becoming conduits for the divine presence in this world, so it wasn't boring at all. In other words, the daily repetitive acts are only meaningless if they're meaningless. But when I realize that this is where reality is. I'm bringing light into the world, bringing light into my children, bringing light into my heart, into my home, into my kitchen, into my dining room, into my family. So this is where it's at. This, this moment is the moment. And this child is the child. And this experience is the experience. And this opportunity is the opportunity of a lifetime. <laughs> Next question. There are four of us in our family. People ask, how did your mother manage to spoil each of you 
We each felt special, and I think people saw that. I'm glad that Dini said what she said, because although we have less kids in our family, we all had the same feeling that my mother saw us each as an only child. She also had the ability to make each friend feel like the best friend in the world. I've heard different people say this. She was my best friend. Today is my mother's birthday. What a gift. Thank you to our mothers for making us feel so special. Indeed, today is also the birthday of the wife of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebetzin Chaya Mushka Schneerson, the Rebetzin, who uh, was the daughter of the person who said this talk, the daughter of the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, his middle daughter was Rebetzin Chaya Mushka Schneerson. She was a Schneerson before her marriage, and then in 1928, she married a Schneerson and became the wife of who would later be the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, and she was born also Chafei Adar, the 25th of Adar, which is the anniversary of creation, which of course Chava is called Eim Kalchai, the mother of all living humans for obvious reasons, and it's the, so it's uh, it's a great day. It's a great day for mothers, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a somewhat Mother's Day, and it's also Mother's Earth's Day, because it's creation of the world, and uh, every day is really Mother's Day, but uh, today especially, and with all this discussion of the Parsha of Ayakov, especially. Okay, let's see if there's any more questions. Okay, and today is my oldest daughter's 19th birthday, Suzanne writes. Mazel tov, mazel tov to all the birthdays out there, and mazel tov to everybody, and every day is really a birthday. And may all of you have tremendous nachas from yourself <laughs> and from your children and what nachas really means is to be able to be fully in tune with what God wants me to be able to do for each of my children according to the journey and mission of their unique and beautiful soul on this world sometimes easier said than done but this is a lot of the work that we need to do this class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.